Hello, and welcome to this episode of Let's Talk MedTech, the premier podcast for the medical device and diagnostic industry. My name is Omar Ford, and I'm the host for this episode. I'm also editor-in-chief of MDDI, an online publication that covers medical devices and diagnostics. On this episode of Let's Talk MedTech, we are speaking with Benjamin Zagarelli of Mints. Now, Benjamin is an attorney that provides regulatory compliance counsel to global clients developing and marketing FDA-regulated products. We've got a lot to talk about today, and Benjamin is going to be touching on several subjects that I know that you want to hear about. We're going to talk all about laboratory-developed tests and the proposed regulation from FDA. We're also going to be getting into artificial intelligence and software. And, and, and we're going to be talking about EUMDR, just uh, having a little discussion about that. So it's an exciting time. It's going to be a, a great conversation. But without further ado, let's talk MedTech with Mince's Benjamin Zagarelli. Well, Ben, hello and welcome to Let's Talk MedTech. Thanks for coming on to the program. Thanks, Omar. Pleasure to be here. Sure. I, I want to get all into our conversation today, uh, but first I want to step back a bit and talk about your role at Mints and, and what you do for your MedTech clients. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm currently of counsel in Mints' New York office, um, and I'm part of the firm's FDA regulatory practice, which is within the larger uh, health law practice at Mints. Uh, my primary practice focuses on assisting medical device companies with pre-market regulatory pathways and strategies, meetings and communications with FDA, uh, obtaining marketing authorization, and then maintaining uh, compliance after authorization. In many cases now, my clients are developers of software as a medical device, especially uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning enabled software. We take on clients at any stage in the life cycle. So it could be discussing early strategies for obtaining authorization um, or even responding to an inquiry from FDA on a, a commercialized device that you know a company could suddenly receive at any point. So we take clients at, at any stage uh, in that life cycle process. Um, alternatively, I also provide advice to companies that want to design and market their devices so that they're not regulated by the FDA. So that's the flip side of it. Um, compliance with the regulations and also try to uh, stay out of uh, FDA's jurisdiction. So that's also an important part of my practice. And well, I'm also part of, oh, good. Yeah, I was gonna say both sides of the coin, really. Absolutely, absolutely. It's ne it's needed. Uh, clients, we, we get clients who come to us and just say, you know, I, I have this product, you know, I we don't think it's we don't think it's regulated by FDA, and we want it we want it to stay that way. So that provides us a a uh, uh, sort of a, uh, a window into the client's desires, and then we will say, okay, you don't want to be regulated by FDA. Here's what you have to do: you have to uh, pare back the functionality, or you have to do uh, X, Y, or Z, and and that's the best way to try to stay out of. The regulatory scope, so that's it, it's it's a very important part of the practice. Yeah, I, I remember 
MDDI used to do this um, startup showdown and used to have a lot of tech companies coming into the healthcare space and they would have to get their technologies uh, uh, regulated by FDA. And it was a new experience for them, right? Because they were coming from the tech world and we would be exposed to them through this contest that we had, you know, the startup showdown. And one of the chief issues that they had was that things moved so differently in the in, in the FDA's world in that regulatory environment. Yeah, absolutely. And there's that sense of, well, we just want to move really fast and get into this market space, right? Because it, yeah, yeah. it's it's an open market. We've got this population that we know wants this this kind of software, this kind of device. So we're just gonna get out there and then we have to be the ones to be like, whoa, whoa, you know, you make sure that you know, you, you're you're compliant if that's where you wanna be, if you wanna be in the medical device space. Um, but then even if a company says, no, 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 we just wanna be in the wellness space and, and not uh, have anything to do with an intended use for, uh, you know, medical or clinical use. And, and we'll have to say, well, okay, that's, that's fine, but here's what you have to do to do that, because there's there's a certain scope of activities and intended uses that you could do um, in that space. But if you cross the line, that's when you get regulated. So, and this especially comes up with software companies now, because software moves really fast, as you as you probably know. Well, let's look forward to um, 2024. But but before we look forward, I know I'm contradicting myself right now. <laughs> Let's take a step back and look at what's happened in the regulatory environment in 2023. Yeah, so we had it was a pretty it was a pretty normal year, seems like for for FDA. There were, there were uh, some developments um, in the regulatory space. Uh, I think we have to start though at the beginning of the year and and actually. Uh, go a little bit back a few days into 2022 uh, to when uh, the Food and Drug Omnibus Reform Act was signed into law on, on December 29th. Um, and that was part of the Consolidated Appropriations Act for 2023. So that had various changes for FDA that impacted a lot of stakeholders in, uh, in the FDA regulated world. Um, and then in, in the med tech side, um, there were uh, requirements for increasing clinical trial diversity. Uh, there were requirements for developers of software and other devices that are connected, whether through wireless or wired connections, to, uh, to design and implement plans to monitor, identify, and address cybersecurity vulnerabilities, which is really tied into uh, a, a larger push by FDA to really focus on and develop its own positions and guidance relating to cybersecurity. Um, and there seem to be lots of new policies and guidances published pretty often. FDA has put out a few of these in the last few years. Um, and the agency has made really clear that cybersecurity is a fundamental aspect of digital and connected device uh, development and uh, in terms of continuing obligations throughout the product life cycle. So that's that's a fairly that's a fairly big deal to include that in um, uh, in the uh, Food and Drug Omnibus Reform Act. Um, so that was the beginning, the very beginning of the year. Um, and then there's just been like with most other industries right now, mm -hmm. it's been artificial intelligence, machine learning. Like let's let's focus on 
the development of AI and the commercialization of AI. And what's been sort of interesting to follow is that, you know, with the with the release of uh, ChatGPT and you know uh, these other generative uh, AI algorithms and uh, you know essentially like you know these chatbots, um, everyone is sort of interested in integrating AI and this conversational AI into uh, work streams and how do you use it in the workplace and uh, mm-hmm. you know, what can it automate and how can it help with developing documents or answering questions or whatever. And FDA has been sort of dealing with AI for a number of years now. So FDA is sort of like business as usual, like, yeah, this is interesting, but, you know, we've been we've been developing uh, policies relating to AI for a few years. So and that sort of continued a pace for for FDA this year with the um, the publication of the predetermined change control plan guidance, which was in uh, which was in April. Um, and then there were the, the guiding principles for predetermined change control plans in October uh, 23. So so those were that, that was a new sort of um, uh, FDA has been developing predetermined change control plans over the past few years and their use in with software, especially. Um, and the idea that you can have a this predetermined uh, plan that describes various changes that otherwise would require separate marketing authorization um, after the main software uh, has been approved or cleared by FDA. So it allows some, so essentially the like reviewing potential changes with the FDA and then FDA can sort of say, yes, these, these changes are okay as long as they proceed in a very procedural way uh, under the plan. Um, and then the company doesn't need to go back to FDA to get authorization again uh, for those changes or modifications. Um, but it's and so it's a it's sort of a, a a novel concept for FDA because normally um, in the past traditionally FDA would say if there's any significant change to uh, a device it needs to you need to re uh, redo the uh, the pre market uh, submission and review stages. Um, And so this sort of takes that out um, of consideration a little bit for certain companies, as long as they get this uh, this uh, predetermined change control plan in place. Although certain changes beyond the plan would obviously need to go back through uh, FDA review. But it's it's an interesting tool for these uh, these software companies to use. Um, Then we had the again, AI machine learning uh, FDA published discussion papers on the use of uh, uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning for drug development and manufacturing, uh, emphasizing the importance of human involvement in these processes um, and review for these process uh, these processes and, and the use of the, uh, the, this type of software um, capability in drug development. Um, and then also the potential risks of uh, data biases and uh, the, these opaque algorithms that have insufficient transparency in their operations and sort of addressing that um, as part of these of working AI and machine learning into the process of drug development and manufacturing to avoid any potential risks down the line. So that was an important development as well. Um, and then uh, FDA is, is establishing a digital health advisory committee, pretty important in terms of uh, getting uh, identifying experts who can 
uh, in the field of uh, software, digital health, um, and uh, you know potentially artificial intelligence and machine learning again, and uh, helping FDA uh, recognize the potential benefits and risks associated with the use of digital health technologies and identifying uh, unintended consequences or other issues relating to these types of technologies and the effect on FDA's policies and regulations, um, or even potential uh, marketing authorization for specific products. Um, and then finally, uh, the, the thing that most people are talking about right now is the, the proposed rule on laboratory developed tests. Yes, yes, yeah. We got to talk about LDTs, yeah. <laughs> What's going on in that space? Can, can you shed some more light? Where are we now with that? Uh, well, <laughs> uh, well, obviously, the, this issue has become a major point of conflict between the laboratory industry and, and FDA. And there's, there's a ton of history here. Uh, we can't possibly cover it in the time we have. Uh, yeah. and, and fortunately, <laughs> the, the, the background and history of where we are now has been covered by many others in the, the <laughs> legal field, including in our blog posts at, at Mintz, we've gone over the, the history of FDA's uh, you know, quote unquote regulation of uh, <laughs> laboratory developed tests over time and the various uh, attempts, misfires, uh, and development of, of uh, you know, rules, guidance, legislation, everything. So, I, so but, but where we are right now, like we have, FDA has proposed regulations mm -hmm. for um, regulating laboratory developed tests. And, you know, the funny part is that the regulation really adds, you know, like something like 10 words to the, like the actual, like, uh, you, you know, one, one provision of the regulation. So, sure. you know, it's a very short addition, but it has a lot of implications. Um, so, but really the, the short version is that, you know, the core of this conflict uh, between uh, FDA um, in attempting to regulate LDTs and the and the clinical laboratory industry is essentially what is the scope of things that FDA can regulate as devices under mm -hmm. the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. And that's really what it what it boils down to. Um, and so FDA says that tests and assays developed in a single clinical laboratory uh, are devices that can be uh, regulated under the act and the agency's regulations. Essentially full stop. Like that that's and 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 that's that's FDA's position and they and you know their their perspective is that the the agency has always maintained that it has the authority to regulate LDTs. Um, but until recently has chosen to exercise enforcement discretion. And so now the proposed rule is essentially FDA ending its enforcement discretion policy for LDTs. Um, and most of the proposed rules, essentially their explanation for why these regulations are needed now. Um, and it really focuses on the fact that the need for regulations has increased significantly based on the massive growth in capabilities of, of clinical laboratories and the expanded use of LDTs 
to support and in some cases even drive uh, the high-risk diagnosis of life-threatening and serious uh, life-threatening diseases and conditions and serious infectious diseases. Um, and the agency is arguing that under-regulated design, development, and validation of these tests, these potentially high-risk tests, uh, can lead to significant levels of misdiagnosis and patient harm. Um, and FDA even goes into uh, some descriptions, mo mostly of, of studies and other data that they're using to uh, you know, establish the potential harm and the risks associated with LDTs. But in partial support of its position, uh, FDA describes its own experience in reviewing uh, LDTs to diagnose uh, COVID-19 and uh, that were submitted under the emergency use authorization process during the pandemic. EUAs, um, yeah. Yeah, EUAs. Yeah, right. And, yep. and the agency often said they often saw incomplete and deficient validation studies um, for the for these tests. And it was it was to the point that you know FDA is describing this that it was so shocking that these laboratories would submit these this type of data that was in FDA's perspective inadequate where they really said, okay, this is really showing us why we need to have these regulations now. Because if that was happening under COVID, and it really, it was a special circumstance where FDA asserted control over LDTs for COVID. And there was, there was a break in that um, authority based on some policy wrangling at um, the Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, but you know, when, when the policy then shifted again towards, you know, as the pandemic developed and the FDA mm. got to uh, review these tests again, um, and they were really seeing these deficiencies and, and said, if this is indicative of what's going on for other high-risk uses of LDTs, then this is a real problem and we have to step in and there's no time to wait for Congress to act on legislation, we need to do this right now. Um, and so, you know, uh, as as everyone knew would happen, uh, clinical laboratories, uh, the industry responded uh, to this perceived, uh, you know, <laughs> critical need for uh, regulation of LDTs. Um, and this is, you know, expressed most recently and comprehensively in. Uh, comments to the proposed rule by the American Clinical Laboratory Association, or ACLA. Um, and, and the industry is taking the position that um, LDTs are services provided by laboratory professionals. And so they can't be considered devices because devices are things. They're tangible things. They're not services. Um, so that's, and that's a, one of the main responses to FDA. It was like, you know, you don't have this authority because you you as a, as an agency regulate things that are devices, not professional services provided by either doctors or laboratories. Um, so the laboratories are also complaining that they're already regulated under the uh, Clinical Laboratory Improvement Amendments or CLIA um, and uh, and other state laws which set credentialing um, and experience requirements for uh, clinical laboratory professionals um, and require validations 
um, and proficiency testing, and uh, in many clinical laboratories that develop LDTs, as the industry points out, are accredited by the, the College of American Pathologists, or CAP, um, which sets even more stringent standards than CLIA. Um, and so if the current Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act does not confer authority on FDA to regulate LDTs, then legislation is necessary. Congress has to pass a law to grant that authority to the agency. And again, as the industry points out, such legislation is currently still under consideration in Congress, and that's the, the verifying accurate leading edge in vitro clinical test development um, or VALID Act. So this is known as the VALID Act. Um, uh, that's what most people call it. Um, and, you know, it's, it, and so a lot of the, the uh, clinical lab industry is, is waiting for Congress to act on that, on that legislation has really put their, their sort of hope for mm. moving along this discussion in the Valid Act, because, you know, as being considered by Congress and all the various you know, interests uh, approaching Congress and members of Congress are more apt to listen to the industry and its discussion of the business consequences and things like that. There are a lot of considerations for the industry built into the Valid Act that FDA's proposed rule simply doesn't do because it all, all it does, like I said, is it adds 10 words to a provision of FDA's regulations. So there's no, you know, grandfathering or consideration of exemptions for tests or, you know, other ways to sort of um, mitigate the ultimate impact on the industry. It simply just puts it into effect and says, now FDA's device regulations apply to LDTs. Um, so that's, and, and so, so, you know, that's what, that's the reason was one of the main reasons for all the pushback from the industry, which is saying, whoa, whoa, we have legislation in the works. You like FDA, you're jumping the gun and you're 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 pushing something that's really untenable for the industry, for uh, for patients, for doctors, for the whole uh, healthcare industry. So uh, that's that's really the pushback. But you know, it's also interesting to note that the laboratory industry hasn't hasn't really pushed back that aggressively against FDA's claimed authority over LDTs until until now when the agency is actually threatening to remove its enforcement discretion. So that's, that's just uh, an interesting thing to note. Do we think this gets resolved in 2024 or do you see it stretching outwards maybe into 2025 or a couple years? Yeah, I mean, so here's my, here's my, my current expectation. So, so okay. one, FDA will absolutely try to publish its final rule as early as possible, probably uh, probably April 2024, with the intent that it take effect soon, as soon as possible after the uh, final rule is published. Um, and two, it's going to be immediately challenged in court, um, and multiple stakeholders are going to seek to block it from taking effect. So I think that's the near term. That's what's going to we're going to see happening. That that FDA is going to get this get this final rule out as soon as it can, and then the industry is going to rush to block it. Um, and But then it's hard to see where it goes from there because, you know, on the one hand, it seems as though um, FDA in part took this took these steps to apply pressure to Congress to get get to work on valid. It, 
FDA was was complying, that was was participating in the valid process, uh, like getting the valid act um, enacted and through you know through Congress signed by uh, by the president. But you know, it really doesn't seem likely yeah. that the valid act is going to be a high priority for Congress with the election coming up. So it's you know the the first thing to happen here is probably that the rule takes effect. I mean, Congress could later essentially invalidate what FDA is doing by by taking up the legislation again. But, you know, it's it, it, that's not going to happen in the near term, I don't think. But then, you know, on the other hand, it's it's not a sure thing that FDA wins this fight in court, um, because you know, although courts traditionally have afforded executive agencies like FDA uh, substantial deference with respect to reasonable interpretations of ambiguous language and statutes, that practice has, is coming under scrutiny and may change because the Supreme Court is reconsidering uh, that standard, which was set by the, by Chevron, uh, you know, decades ago. So that deference, that system of deference to the agencies may, may fall apart. And then courts can feel free to question you know, more more free to question FDA's process here and why they're doing this and whether it even fits with their statutory authority. So that's it's going to be pretty interesting to watch, and I think it's going to going to extend quite a bit. I don't expect this to be fully resolved in 2024. Speaking of things that won't be fully uh, resolved next year, I want to talk about EU MDR. I know our, our time is is short. I only have you for a limited amount of time, but I want your thoughts on EU MDR. And I know that's just such a loaded question, right? Uh, but I want to know what rumblings you've been hearing from your companies, uh, from, from companies you serve or clients. Sure. So, you know, with the with the caveat that we don't, we don't advise on the EU uh, medical device sure. regulation, really, because you know we're we're U.S. attorneys. We mostly focus on the application of, of FDA, uh, the the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, sure. FDA regulations, and, and state laws. But we do hear things from clients uh, based on their commercialization plans. Um, you know, whether it's a company that has a new device, completely new, not in any, not approved or cleared or authorized in any jurisdiction. And they're saying, well, we want to start in the United States and then move to other jurisdictions, including including the EU um, later. Or we have certain clients who, you know, are are from the EU and they already have a CE mark. Um, and then they want to come into the United States. Obviously, the United States is a giant market. So Everyone wants to be there, and it just depends on the priority of do you want to be in the U.S. first and get through that process because the FDA process is typically seen as a difficult one to get through. So mm-hmm. sometimes there are advantages to either getting through it first or you know, alternatively going through the EU process first, um, which is also a, a difficult and comprehensive process. Uh, but doing that first and then coming to the United States uh, but it just depends on the on the company's uh, you know their their commercialization plans and how their strategy for getting to market. Um, but I mean, sort of the things we've been hearing are just generally that um, the extended compliance timelines for the MDR have have really helped certain co- companies with existing um, 
device certifications. Um, so you know, there's been a lot of issues with the MDR taking effect, whether it was, you know, uh, long lead times to, you know, getting certification, the um, limited availability of notified bodies um, for the MDR, but then also the, the, the pandemic. So there were, there were a lot of different extensions that happened in terms of, um, you know, device certificates that from the previous uh, directive, uh, you know, continuing for a while. And now those continue, you know, it depends on the classification for the, for the device, but they generally continue now uh, through uh, 2027 and, and uh, in some cases, 2028. Um, so that's it's, it's, so now there's more of a grace period for these companies to operate. Um, but that's companies that already have certifications. Um, so for new companies trying to access the, the EU market with devices, you know, we're still hearing a lot of confusion about um, in terms of actual compliance um, in the, the guidance and other policies relating to the MDR. And this is especially from smaller manufacturers, just trying to figure out how it all is working, especially with all of the, um, the changes that happened and the, the yep. various adaptations and accommodations based on timing and you know the application of the regulations. So it's, it's sort of confusing. Um, but at least there are more notified bodies now uh, that are uh, certified um, under uh, uh, to, pro to provide uh, MDR services. Um, so that's so that's sort of eased some of the the timeline problems for certain companies, and they can actually get appointments with the notified bodies now. Um, but it seems as though it still seems as though a lot of device companies, again the smaller ones especially, are, are waiting for the regulations and the guidance to develop a bit more, and until there's more experience with the implementation and compliance of the MDR. So, like you know this. If they're engaging consultants or you know others, like they want, they want to make sure that the path is clear, that they're getting clear advice, and that there's definitely like you know a track record here of getting um, certification under the MDR, and and that the you know the, letting the rules settle out a little bit. So you know some companies are taking that uh, uh, taking taking that strategy and moving forward with that, um, and just might. And might prefer just coming to the United States first as their first market. Um, but you know, others uh, that are more comfortable with the MDR have looked at it for a while um, and maybe have engaged more experienced consultants or you know whatever that they're able to just take on the process and 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 go through it. So you know, it's it just it sort of depends on the company. Um, the other interesting thing here, just to mention, because of uh, the EU MDR hook, is the um, is FDA's harmonization of the quality system regulation with uh, the ISO 13485 requirements. Yeah. So that proposed rule was published in February 2022, um, and FDA had earlier this year said it was on track to finalize those new harmonized regulations uh, in December, so this month, December 2023. But you know, that's not likely to happen at this point unless the agency just sort of dumps it on everybody right before the holiday. I mean, it could happen, but it's looking more and more likely that there's a little, there's, this needs a little bit more time. Um, so we're probably going to see that um, pretty 
early in 2024, uh, hopefully. Um, and it's going to be sort of interesting to see how the harmonized quality system regulation affects other areas of uh, US EU uh, device regulations and company strategies. So, you know, does the harmonization facilitate submissions to either region or obtaining marketing authorization? Will it allow for uh, further consolidation of inspection requirements uh, post-market, so like in the way that the medical device single audit program did? Uh, so it's it's going to be sort of interesting to see like how that shakes out, what the ultimate ramifications from that harmonization are. So you know, really interested to see that um, and when that comes out from the agency. Definitely, definitely. Well, Ben, you know, it's it's been an honor having you on the show and and you've really given our audience a, a lot to, to think about. And there's just a lot going on in the regulatory environment. Uh, tell us, is there a way that we could get in contact with you or Mint or our company can, or a potential client if they're just interested in finding out a little bit more about what you all do or, or if they're interested in your services? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my uh, my bio and information on my practice is available on the Mint's website, just mints.com. Um, and you can you can look me up, uh, Benjamin Zagarelli, under the uh, the company directory. Um, and then you can also just uh, directly get in touch with me. It's uh, it's uh, B and then M Z E G A R E L L I at mints.com. Um, and my email address is obviously on the uh, the firm website as well. So you know, happy to talk about any of these topics or you know anything up and coming at the agency. We field a lot of those questions and and matters, and you know we're happy to handle. Uh, any sort of regulatory matters that come up for medtech companies. Well, Ben, thanks for coming on. Let's talk medtech. And we've got to have you back. Absolutely. We'd love to come back. That's it for this episode of Let's Talk MedTech. Once again, thanks to our guest, Mrs. Benjamin Zagarelli. If you love this conversation and you just love this podcast, please make sure to check us out at mddionline.com. That's mddionline.com. Not only does it have the Let's Talk MedTech podcast, but it has all kinds of other related content to the medtech and diagnostic industry. As for Let's Talk MedTech, please make sure to rate review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.